This is Truth with Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Last week, we examined the biblical instruction, Judge not, lest you be judged. Today, we'll expand on this and come across what is known as the Golden Rule. That's not what the Bible ever calls the command to do unto others as you would have done to you, but there is something very valuable in this rule for godly living. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 7. We'll wrap up the Sermon on the Mount, including the Golden Rule, and learn once more that God's standard, the divine standard, is not just good advice. It's what God demands of citizens of the kingdom. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. We're going to continue the lesson we started last week. We're talking about how to confront correctly. There's the right way to do it, and there's the wrong way to do it. We are all too familiar with the wrong way of doing brotherly confrontation, are we not? All we have to do is look in the news and see the human philosophy of dealing with confrontation that leads to destruction and death. But Jesus has a better system here, and we are privileged to look at it. So let's read together verses 7 through 12 of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. So church, the theme of this entire argument here that Jesus is presenting is how subjects of the kingdom of heaven should confront one another. It's uncomfortable, we don't like to do it, it's unpopular, but the Bible says there's a right way to do it. And there are several features of that divine standard. We're going to talk about two more today. The first one is the promise of the divine standards in verses 7 through 11. Aren't you glad that God not only commands us to do the right thing, but He guarantees that there are promises, there is a benefit to be gained by following the divine standard. Now, living by His standard is not easy to do. It doesn't come naturally. We know that. And that standard, according to verse 5, requires divine intervention. How do we know that? Because he says, before you talk about the speck in your brother's eye, remove the log that is in your eye. And the point here is this. In order to remove the log from our eyes, we need divine help. Because we can't do it on our own. Left to our own devices, we are going to proclaim our own innocence, our own self-righteousness. So we should not dare even start the process without praying for wisdom, for patience, for faithfulness, for gentleness, kindness, and the right motivation, which is a spirit of reconciliation and restoration, church. We need to keep that in mind. Any type of brotherly confrontation needs to lead to reconciliation, whether it's within a couple or it's between brother and brother in the church or sister and sister or friends. It needs to lead to reconciliation and restoration of fellowship rather than self-righteous vindication. 
Jesus does this then by presenting three commands, the ones that we know very well. And he follows all of these commands with promises to demonstrate something very important. And what he's demonstrating is that God will always lead his people toward the divine standard of brotherly confrontation. So the three commands are ask, seek, and knock in verse 7, like we saw. But Jesus explains the promise of the divine standard by issuing those three positive commands in four parts. Let's look at those four parts. Let's go through them, okay, one by one. The first one is the progression of the promise. In verse 7, the first imperative, the first command here is ask in anticipation of the obvious but unstated question from his listeners. So the first order of business then, church, when we're doing this is to ask God for a humble heart, for a heart that's not self-righteous, for a heart that is aligned with his standard. Notice in verse 7 that Jesus follows up his command with a promise. Ask and it will be given to you. But notice with me here, church, that that promise is in the passive voice. It will be given to you. So the question is, who's going to give what? Now draw a line between that verse and verse 11 in your Bible because it says that your Father who is in heaven will give you what is good. Now hold on to that thought because we're going to get there in a moment. Stay tuned. In the meantime, look at the second command here. Seek after praying for discernment. Every believer in Christ, every subject of the kingdom of heaven, which is another way of describing born-again believers in Christ, we should relentlessly pursue God. That's what he means here. Seek God. And why is that, church? Because when you understand the divine character, when you understand the divine attributes, the desire to obey him is going to flow from a heart filled with gratitude for so great a salvation in submission and in response to his character. Obviously, the idea here is also keep looking until you find. In church, God wants to be found. Now, obviously, we cannot obtain the godly virtues necessary for proper brotherly confrontation unless we seek God, we search Him like we're mining for a precious stone. And notice, church, the guarantee of that promise because He attaches the promise to that command. Seek and you will find. In other words... Just like the diver who risks his life to descend to the ocean floor seeking for pearls inside oysters, we will find God. So he will equip us to apply the divine standard for brotherly confrontation here because that's what he desires for us to do. The alternative, we must know this, the alternative, seeking human wisdom is the deadliest thing you can do because it destroys relationships, it hurts people, It destroys characters and it causes division in the church. It causes separation in the home. But on the other hand, the divine standard is holy and precious because Jesus says, Jesus compares it to a pearl in verse 5. So we are to ask and we are to seek and we are to knock. That's the third imperative that Jesus uses, the third command. We are to knock. Now, just like the other two commands, the idea is keep on knocking. Not just knock one time, well, there's no one home, I guess I better go. No, keep on knocking because you will find it. The door will be open to you. That's a promise from Christ. Now, there's no literal door, so reason with me here. What does a door do, church? What is the purpose of a door? To keep people outside, of course, but also to allow people in, especially when you knock. So this metaphorical door here that Jesus is talking about is the door of the divine standard. Knock on that door and you will find it. Keep on knocking. Now, it communicates the idea of entrance, forward movement. And that's the idea of progression we've been talking about, the sequence here. There is a progression. You ask, 
you seek, and then you knock, and you will find all of these things. So we can summarize the sequence or the progress like this. When we talk about brotherly confrontation, first of all, we need to decide in our hearts that we're going to reject gossip. We're going to reject the sinful tendency of going the way of destroying character. No, we need to decide in our hearts that we're going to abandon that. We are going to embrace the divine way of doing confrontation. We reject human wisdom. We pray continually for divine wisdom, discernment, and humility. Then we seek God like we're mining for precious stones. And then we keep on knocking, and then we move forward confidently. And that's the sequence. We ask, we seek, and we knock. Let's talk about the confirmation of the promise. Verse 8. After the progression, he now presents the confirmation of the promise. Why do we say this? Because he says it again in verse 8. He restates what he stated already in verse 7. And then he doubles up on the guarantees of answered prayer for those who want to honor the divine standard of brotherly confrontation. And he does this, church. I want you to see this. He does this by turning the promises into principles. Did you catch that? He turns those promises into general principles. How do we know that? Circle the word everyone. Circle the expression, he who seeks, in your Bible. Circle the expression, he who knocks. Those are generalized principles. And this is the principle. Access to divine wisdom is not limited to a selected few. But anyone whose heart desires to honor God will do so by his enablement. That's the confirmation of the promise. By the way, by doing that, to include every subject of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus shatters the arrogance of the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, church, because they thought they were the exclusive recipients of God's favor. They thought that they were the ambassadors of the divine system. And Jesus breaks that down and says, no, your righteousness is substandard. You are not even in the kingdom. So he shatters their arrogance because they have a works-based righteousness. So here's how we apply that principle. The promise turned into principle here. Church, you do not need a theology degree in order to operate by the divine standard. You don't have to be the elite in any man-made system of salvation or hierarchy in order to apply that. All you need to do is ask, seek, and knock because Jesus Christ guarantees answer to your prayer twice. Once directly and second here in verse 8, he confirms that. Now, let me ask you a question. I, I do really need an answer for this one. How many times does Jesus have to say something before that something is true? Anybody? Once. He has to say something only once to be true. Here he says it twice, making the point very clear to us. And the point is here. God is more interested in you applying the divine standard of brotherly confrontation than you are. Have you considered this? God is more interested in that than you are. So obviously, when you ask, seek, and knock for God to equip you to do that, guess what, church? He has already confirmed to you that He is going to answer your prayers. That's a guaranteed answer to prayer when you pray according to His will. So let me ask you another question. You don't need to answer this one, okay? Based on what we just learned, should you seek God for personal vengeance? Should you seek or knock on the door of retaliation, church? The obvious answer is no. Consider the second half of verse 2. By the standard of your measure, it will be measured to you. That's what Jesus says. If you operate by the human standard of brotherly confrontation, guess what? Sooner or later, you're going to be put on trial according to that system. Somebody will make sure that you don't have the benefit of the doubt. Somebody is going to judge your motives. That's what Jesus says. And furthermore, you are at risk of him allowing that to happen. 
So after presenting the progression and the confirmation of the promise here concerning brotherly confrontation, Jesus gives the illustration. Verses 9 through 10, the illustration of the promise. Once again, Jesus presents divine truth in metaphorical language so that everybody can understand. Obviously, here is the conclusion of this. No father among his listeners would deny food to his children. No father would give an unclean animal to his son. Remember, he's addressing a Jewish audience. So they knew exactly about the uncleanliness of snakes. So he asks those two parallel rhetorical questions, not because he wants an answer, but because they stimulate thinking. And by doing that, he prepares them to receive a precious truth. And he does this by comparing the lesser with the greater. He compares the lesser with the greater. After we learned the progression of the promise, the confirmation of the promise, the illustration of the promise, now Jesus gives us the comparison. Verse 11, if you then being evil, wow, what a blow to the self-righteousness of his listeners there. Presumably the scribes and Pharisees were within earshot there. You being evil know how to do good things for your children. Now again, he makes a judgment call. Remember this church, in verse 6 it says do not judge but here he's making a judgment call he's calling them evil obviously then we understand that he's referring to the type of judgment we are to refrain from and that type of judgment is premature sentencing of someone's motives because all around the scriptures he said you are to make judgment calls you are to determine what is good and what is evil you are to make judgment calls and he makes one here he says you are evil you being evil knows how to do good things to your children and he dismantles the self-perception of the scribes and Pharisees who thought that they had achieved a level of goodness so high that placed them automatically in the kingdom of heaven, making God, therefore, a debtor to men. Nothing can be further from the truth, according to Scripture. Church, we know that. God, therefore, deals a fatal blow to their works-based system of salvation. And, by the way, any other modern system of religion that says that God has to give you heaven as a result of your good works. Now, he drives the last nail in the, in the coffin of human pride here in verse 11. And here's the truth, church. Remember, he is preparing his listeners to hear a very precious truth. The truth is this. People are not good by nature. People are not good by nature. Paul confirms this in Romans 3, verse 22, when he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, church, every religion that teaches the innate goodness of man contradicts the very words of Jesus. And because Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, every system that contradicts him is a lie. So, according to him then, people are not good by nature. We are all sinners. But check this out. According to him, even sinners know how to produce good deeds. And at least they know how to be good fathers, according to his point here. And this is what this means, church. Not every sinner is as bad as Adolf Hitler. Atheists can be philanthropists, but that's not his point here. According to Isaiah 64, verse 6, every work of righteousness meant to produce salvation is like a filthy rag before God. Good works cannot earn salvation. Good works cannot produce the level of righteousness that is demanded in order to be in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's confronting the listeners. Every person, church, whoever existed, in the history of mankind, has inherited a sinful nature from his or her parents, except Jesus Christ. How do we know that, church? Because the Bible says very clearly that God the Father bypassed natural conception 
to bring about the virgin birth so that Jesus Christ would not inherit a sinful nature from his parents. So everyone else is a sinner by nature and falls short of the glory of God. Therefore, only Jesus Christ qualifies to take people into heaven. Not one of your works is enough to get you into heaven. Now, next time someone insists with you and claims that he or she is basically a good person, I encourage you to take him through Matthew 5, verse 21, and ask the question, have you ever hated someone in your heart? Well, if that's the case, you've committed murder in the heart. Therefore, you're not a good person. Have you ever looked at a woman or at a man with lust in your eyes? Because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 27, if you even have done that, you've already committed adultery in the heart. We are not good by nature. We are sinners who are in desperate need of redemption. Now, if your friend there is still insisting in his or her own goodness, after you take him through Matthew 5, verse 21 and 27, take him to Matthew 5, verse 48, that says this here, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that drives the point home. No one deserves to be in heaven. The only one way we can get to heaven is by his grace through faith. And, the, and he, Jesus is offering himself up as the Redeemer, as the majestic Savior. Here's what else is going on in verse 11 that I want us to know. Jesus is presenting the lesser to greater comparison here to make his audience understand the promise of the divine standard. And here is the comparison. You being evil know how to do good things. Imagine the heavenly father who has unlimited resources. Imagine your heavenly father who is not only all loving but three times holy. Imagine what he can do for those who ask him according to his own will. Jesus wants them to come to that conclusion and he wants us to come to the same conclusion. Church, his promise is this, and it will come to sharper focus when we understand this here. Every time you are confronted with the possibility of godly, brotherly conflict that you need to point out the sin in someone's life, you ask, you seek and knock, God will grant you those requests because he's more interested in doing that than, than you are. He guarantees that promise twice. But again, the promise comes into a sharper focus when we determine what Jesus means by what is good. When he says, how much more will your father give to you what is good? So what is what is good? See if you can draw a line there between the fish, the loaf, the pearl, with what is good and what is holy. They all mean the same thing. They're all connected by the context. It's a chain. And that chain gives us the following principle. If you are interested in honoring God's standard of brotherly confrontation... He will equip you through your asking, your seeking, and your knocking. And masterfully, Christ backs up this promise with the goodness of God in contrast with the sinfulness of man. But here's one last very important point in this whole session here that I want you to know. Although God promises to equip us completely for the task, He guarantees nothing about the outcome of the confrontation. Did you catch that? He promises to equip us completely for the task, but he guarantees nothing about the outcome of the brotherly confrontation. In other words, people will reject you. People will resent you when you propose the biblical method of confrontation. Why do we know that? Because he says in verse 6, if you throw your pearls to the swine and the dogs, they will turn against you. They will tear you into pieces. That's the proverbial way of saying they will resent you. They will talk about you. They will badmouth you. They will go behind your back. They'll stick the knife on your back. That's almost always the case. Uh, in most cases, when you're dealing with uh, people who are not saved, 
People who are false believers, the dogs and the hogs that uh, Jesus Christ talks about here. People who claim to be believers but are not. How do we know that? Because he starts verse 5 by saying, you hypocrite. When you apply the divine standard, he does not promise that people will appreciate you. Don't expect a standing ovation. Don't expect to be encouraged by people. Expect people to turn against you. Obviously, God is going to reward us for our faithfulness, and he will raise up some people to encourage us. So that's the promise of the divine standard. Let's finish this whole thing with the rule of the divine promise, verse 12. You may have heard this maxim, this truth here, being expressed as the golden rule. Perhaps we could call it the pearly rule, to be more biblically appropriate here. He concludes his thought by saying, Therefore, treat others like you want to be treated. And indicates that Jesus is wrapping up his thought here. But also notice something else. He says, in everything. So which indicates to us that he is no longer limiting the context to brotherly confrontation. Because he says, in everything, therefore. You see, he amplifies what he's talking about here. And Jesus states this summarizing rule I want you to notice here in a positive tone. What do I mean by that? He does not say, do not do to others what you don't want them to do to you. He says, do to others or treat others like you want to be treated. And there's a simple reason for that. Because simply refraining from doing the act does not necessarily preserve the holiness of the divine standard. Why else would he say in chapter 5 verse 21, you can commit murder in the heart. See, we can commit murder, church, without lifting a finger, without even saying a word, we can commit murder in the heart. So that's why he's saying this. Simply reframing from the act doesn't do anything. Treat others like you want to be treated. By using the positive imperative, by stating that command in positive terms, he teaches the active, practical aspect of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what this is all about. The active, practical aspect of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Believers in Christ. Church, if you are a born-again believer in Christ, you should feature this kind of brotherly love. We don't rush the judgment of each other's motives. Rather, we grant the benefit of the doubt always. We are quick to forgive and even quicker to ask for forgiveness because that's the virtue that Jesus expects from people who claim to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Otherwise, it's substandard righteousness, he says. And here is that principle. Do you want others to approach you privately when you sin? Or do you want them to blast your character out in the virtual world? Do you want them to forgive you do you want them to hear the clarification of your motives? Then do the same. Operate by the same principle. Do the same. And finally here in verse 12 has double duty. I want you to see that. It concludes the larger portion of the Sermon on the Mount here that started in chapter 5 verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. And then in chapter 12 of verse 7 he says, this is the law and the prophets. So we know right there that that's the entire Sermon on the Mount there. There was the introduction with the Beatitudes, the application of the Beatitudes, now the body of the sermon, and now the conclusion. And so he concludes his whole thought with this. This is the law and the prophets, the golden rule. Applied is the law and the prophets. And here's his point, church. I want you to pay close attention here. The protagonist of the entire Old Testament and the New Testament, of course, speaks he says, this is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. What he means by that is this. The law and the prophets all point to Christ. The entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. The ultimate example of the virtues that he commands. In other words, 
Look at his life. If you're not sure how to apply this, if after you ask, seek, and knock, and you're still not sure how to apply it, just look at his life. Learn from his example. And in fact, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's in Matthew 11, verse 29. Learn from the one who receives sinners and eats with them. Now, I want to conclude by telling you about him. The one who shines brighter than a pearl, because according to the author of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is the majestic Savior. And He is the radiance of the glory of the Father and the exact representation of His nature. So He shines brighter than a pearl. He is our majestic Savior. And our majestic Savior, church, not only forgives sinners, He cancels debts. He pardons criminals. He resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. He binds out the brokenhearted. He delivers captives. He preaches good news to the afflicted. He lifts up the downcast and receives the outcast. He purifies the unclean. He adopts the fatherless and lavishes his kindness on the undeserving. He embraces the unwanted. He discharges transgressors. And he gives sight to the spiritually blind. He begins a good work in the life of his people. And he leads his church to triumph. He never forsakes his own. He leads his flock to quiet waters and lays down his life for his friends. Because the Bible says there is no greater love. He is my majestic Savior. The question I have for you this morning is this, church. Is He your majestic Savior? Is He your rock, your Redeemer, your advocate before the Father? He wants to be. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. We're looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.